This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. From AMI Central. Now circling in the neutral zone. Here's the pitch on the way. 36 yards for the win. This. Here comes a big chance. The shot is. Is this the tiger? The neutral zone. This is as good as it gets. Now, here's your host. To- Friday to you. It is another edition of the Neutral Zone. I am indeed your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cam Jenkins. Cameron, how are you? Oh, you know, it's another uh, wonderful day in the neighborhood uh, being here in Ontario. Yes, it is quite the scene in Ontario right now. And Josh Watson, <laughs> how are you? Uh- I'm doing well, Brock. It is Friday. We get to do the show. There's Blue Jays, Raptors, Leafs, and the MLS starts up this weekend for all of you fans of the beautiful game. So it is a good weekend to be a sports fan. Good time for everyone to uh, stay at home and uh, follow public health directions, which we'll be getting uh, in mere moments here, at least in Ontario, Cameron, you were going to make a remark before I so rudely cut you off, and I apologize. Oh, oh that's okay, you know. Uh, no, I was just going to say, you know, it's a lovely day outside, and I'm getting a lot of heat, but it might be from the dumpster fire that's going out in Ontario right now, so. <laughs> oh, 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 throwing down on a Friday afternoon here on the neutral zone, indeed. Uh, yes, it's uh, it's been quite the scene here, and I just urge people to uh, get your vaccines when it is your turn, and please, please stay at home as we are directed to. And on that note, we're going to discuss our Twitter polls. Let's talk about last week's. Uh, did you watch March Madness this year at all? The responses goes as follows. 25% of you said Yes, but only the final game. 37.5% of you said no. 37.5% of you said yes. And that is this week's, last week's results. And this week's question goes as follows. Are you satisfied with what your team did at the trade deadline in the NHL? Yes or no? Josh, quick thoughts. Are you satisfied? I'm a Maple Leaf fan, so yes, I'm quite satisfied. They needed some toughness. They needed an extra goalie in case uh, Anderson is not back and Campbell needs days off. Unfortunately, Michael Hutchison just was not able to do the job, and I feel bad for that. But you know what? It's it's a professional league. you got to bring your A game. So I'm happy with what they did, and I'm looking forward to the stretch run now. Cameron, are you happy? Oh, yeah. Uh, As everyone knows, I'm a Leaf fan as well. So I think Dubas did a wonderful job of uh, ticking off all the boxes of everything that he needed. And we're going to get into it later, but I'm really glad that uh, he got Nick Foligno uh, compared to... um, Oh, the guy that used to be from Edmonton. I can't believe the name escapes me, but... uh, Taylor Taylor Hall. Taylor Hall. Thank you very much, boys. Yeah, I'm so much uh, happier that they got him rather than Taylor Hall. So, yeah, let's go. Playoff time. Indeed. And on that note, let's get into this week's headlines. Hideki Matsuyama put together two brilliant closing rounds at Augusta National to win the 2021 Masters. He's become the first Japanese man to win a golf major. Congratulations, Mr. Matsuyama. I had a chance to watch parts of the Masters 
in the last week. He did a masterful job. So kudos to you, sir. The NHL trade deadline has come and gone. Here's a closer look at the numbers. The number of trades that were made were 16. The players moved 28. And the total number of draft picks acquired was 18. And, of course, as we've done a lot, we've talked a lot of curling on this program. Sweden's Nicholas Adin earned his third championship title for the Worlds with a victory at the Men's Worlds over Scotland. And he has done a wonderful job. He's won something like four out of the last six events. So congratulations, Mr. Adin. And he is playing in the Players' Championship as we speak. Denver Nuggets star guard Jamal Murray has been diagnosed with a torn ACL in his left knee. Unfortunately, this puts him out for the rest of this season and also puts him out for any work he would do with Canada basketball. He is originally from your neck of the woods, bro, Kitchener, Ontario, I believe. And uh, yeah, this is a huge blow for Denver and for Canada basketball. Indeed, he is uh, from Kitchener, and I agree with you. It's a huge loss, uh, not only for the Denver Nuggets, who a lot of people got behind um, last year with their playoff run. And so speedy recovery and all the best and hope to see you back on the basketball court very soon. And on that note, we're going to take a break here on the Neutral Zone. Coming up next, we're going to revisit a discussion we had not too long ago about including para-sports into the mainstream world. Hang in with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Neutral Zone on AMI-audio. And welcome back to The Neutral Zone AMI broadcast booth. And we are set to get this ball game underway. The first pitch brought to you by Brock Richardson's Twitter account at NeutralZoneBR. First pitch, strike. And hey, gang, why not strike up a Twitter conversation with Brett Wills from the Neutral Zone? Find him at Neutral Zone Brett. Swinging a chopper to second base right at CP Buchanan 13. Claire picks up the ball, throws it over to first base for a routine out. And fans, there is nothing routine about connecting with Cam and Josh from the Neutral Zone. At Neutral Zone, Cam J and at J Watson 200. Now that's a winning combination. And this organ interlude is brought to you by AMI-audio on Twitter. Get in touch with the Neutral Zone. Type in at AMI-audio. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by uh, Josh Watson and Cam Jenkins. First of all, I just want to uh, welcome any of the new listeners that might be either listening to us live or on podcast. Welcome to the program, and uh, we hope that you enjoy our program. we got a jam-packed program for you today, as we always do, but... Welcome aboard. I just wanted to shout out those new people out there that may be listening to us in some form or another. So, guys, I wanted to revisit a conversation we had a while ago about basically para sports um, being affiliated with their um, 
mainstream counterpart and how we'd like to see more um, inclusivity in sports. And we've got a couple of stories to tell you, but I wanted to lead the conversation with something we heard from Eric Robesnik's who's the project manager for adaptive, the assistant project manager for adaptive sports in Michigan. Let's have a listen to what he said, and then we'll get going from there. I think the biggest gap right now as to you know, where we see the lack of development is inclusion at the K-12 level. If you look at the physical education curriculum you know, across the board in our Canadian schools, physical education at the K-12 level is about developing physical literacy skills being able to throw a ball, being able to get from point A to point B, being able to work on a, work as a team to achieve a goal. Now, all these different skills can be achieved and can be addressed uh, in an accessible and in an inclusive way. Now, to be able to throw a ball, I don't have to be, you know, standing up. And it doesn't, you know, just because somebody's sitting in a chair or whatever other disability shouldn't ex- exclude them from the fact that they can participate if the system is set up to be more accessible. Okay, so let's take that as our jumping point for this conversation. And the message Eric is trying to get across is such that it needs to start from the grassroots and and moving forward. And I just want to get your thoughts on overall what he thought but also, is it that simple to just integrate parasports into the the mainstream curriculum? Cam, start with you. I think it's going to be very um, challenging to put it into the mainstream curriculum. Um, you know, just going by what I've done, uh, be it sludge hockey or um, throwing, uh, because there may be some throwing uh, at the high school level. Um, You know, would each high school have to buy a throw chair? Um, And, you know, you hear about teachers not, you know, having to buy their own um, pencils or notebooks for some of the kids or some of their own uh, crafts and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's it's very hard to adapt it into the uh, curriculum, especially if you're having to buy – you know, uh, certain uh, throw chairs, uh, you know, for track and field, as an example. So I don't know how you would do that unless somehow they had more of a budget to be able to do that, to, you know, have the inclusivity to do it. Or, you know, you go with the other way and you get some of the able-bodied kids to um, maybe not do some of the uh, sports or uh, physical ed that they're used to doing. So some of the other people that are, uh, you know, doing parasports, uh, it can kind of gel together. But I don't know where you would start with that or how you would do it. I think, Cam, you're being far too nice. Um, I don't see this happening at all, to be quite honest with you. And I think it's a combination of things. It is people not being aware of what parasports you can incorporate into a curriculum. It's the cost and it's also the attitudes in my opinion. Um, 
I grew up in a very small town in southern Ontario, and I'm certain that very few of my teachers in high school or public school would have had any idea what parasports were. I mean, their idea of giving me something to do during a section of gym class that was not an accessible sport was to have me go and lift weights in the corner, and I had to bring my own weights. So granted, that was 30 years ago. But I haven't heard of things changing that much. So I just, I I love his optimism and maybe things are different in the U.S., but I don't see it happening. Yeah. And you know, Josh, at the end of the day, because it costs so much money for a sledge or for a throw chair that I don't see it happening either. And it is so wrong uh, to put a person with a disability in the corner and to say, okay, go lift weights while the rest of your classmates do this, because that just furthers the gap of able-bodied people seeing people with disabilities and basically saying, okay, well, they're not as good as us because we can do this and he's doing that. And somehow you need for it to be able to come together so people um, are equals. And by doing that, what happened to you and what happened to me too? Um, We aren't treated as equals. And then that just kind of goes on from there and a whole bunch of societal issues. Absolutely. And then the other other piece to all of this that happens is how much can you integrate? Like, because all of a sudden, you're going to say to the, the disability community, you're going to say, okay, we're going to integrate this into gym class. And then what about the able-bodied group that's saying, well, wait, why do we have to, you know, um, learn this? And so there has to be that fine line between we're going to learn part of this and we're going to learn part of this. But then again, both parties have to be included in, in both aspects. You cannot say, while we're doing this, we're going to sh- shift over the able-bodied people and, and say, you're the only one doing this. And while we're doing this with the able-bodied people, we can't be putting the the disabled people in the corner. Like, there has to be that line where we draw. And I don't even under even know how we start that. I know when I was in school, um, people wanted to learn um, what bocce was. But then when they found out that a set of bocce balls is... they went, whoa, like we would have loved to try to do this, but it's, it's not that easy. So do you guys have any thoughts as to how you can slowly integrate it? I guess, Josh. Well, for me, I think the sports are there. I think you can find a way to borrow some roller sledges and, do a sledge hockey piece in your your curriculum. I think there is a way, not even necessarily to have the able-bodied kids doing the disabled sport or the parasport necessarily. Let me get my terminology right there. But even if you've got a track and field module in your phys ed program, have a throw chair or or even some tie-down straps so that a child in a wheelchair can throw a shot put just like the other kids or throw a javelin, can race around the track in their wheelchair. The able-bodied students, in my opinion, don't necessarily have to do the parasport with the child, but just make it possible 
for the child to do the activity that the students are doing. But the other thing that we we haven't touched on is the attitudes. It, you've if you've got some old school teachers per se, you you sometimes get the good for you mentality where it's like, "Oh wow, you you tried and that's great." Like I remember in grade 8 doing track and field day outside and everybody looked forward to it because you were outside and you weren't in class. But Instead of doing the shot put, which grade eight was the first year you could do it, I got to do the ball throw. And the teacher that was running it said to me, oh, congratulations, you just threw further than the junior girls record for ball throw. And I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fine to, to integrate, but you don't have to integrate entirely. Just yeah. just make the effort. But I agree with Cam that, that cost is a huge factor here. Yeah, Cam, and with and cost, just... do you end up getting corporate like corporate corporations to try to give to the schools just so you know a school can buy a throw chair or can possibly um buy a you know, um, uh, a racer, a wheelchair racer. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what it is, but I think Josh is certainly on the right path by integrating it. If it is a track and field day or you're going to be doing track, uh, having some of the runners uh, with the wheelchair racers, um, or if it's uh, baseball, you know, um, having a person being able to play baseball that's in a wheelchair and possibly doing that along with them as well um the throw chair and as josh i believe mentioned as well getting some of those people to actually go into the chair and try it themselves because i think the only way that you're going to make the world um a more inclusive place and a more understanding place is if uh you know uh, the able-bodied people also try uh what the uh, parasport person is going through and then i think there's going to be a lot more understanding I think for me, the thing that I would like to see as a starting point, because when I was in school, this wasn't even on the table. I'd like to see an acknowledgement of these are sports that are available to you. Instead of doing gym class and not making it even known that there are sports available to me, I didn't even know that bocce was a, a, a thing until I was... 12 years old like it was never introduced to me until later on in life and i would have loved for the schools to say even though we're talking about export there is this one for you and this is where you can go i understand that we're shooting for the stars here but it has to be presented to everyone in order to be inclusive where i want to go from here now is to discuss some scenarios where we as athletes have felt kind of uh, not included. Uh, Josh, you had a story about uh, throwing and, and an able-bodied uh, athlete as well. You want to tell the listener a little bit about that? Sure. So I realize it is a hard job to run an integrated track and field meet. There's a lot of events. There's There's a lot of technical things to get right. But when I was at Nationals, uh, for track and field, I believe it was 2015 or 2016. The event overall was pretty well done, 
but we had one instance where the men's hammer throw and the men's either discus or shot put were scheduled back to back. And there was an athlete who was scheduled to compete in both and was an Olympic hopeful in both. So a day, maybe two days before the comp, our competition, which was uh, para shot put, our coaches were gathered together and told, not even asked, but told, we're moving your event to this circle outside the stadium. And if our coach and one of the other coaches hadn't spoken up, it just would have happened. There wouldn't have been any thought to, is this okay? It was just, well, this is a, this is a medal hopeful for the Olympics. We have to accommodate him. And you're left with a feeling that you're just second class like your event doesn't matter we were we were taken from the shot put circle inside the stadium where fans could watch us to a shot put circle outside the stadium that up until the day before the event was used to house a bouncy castle for young kids to play in and it turned out that it wasn't even necessarily a regulation shot put area so it was just, it was an entirely frustrating experience. And thank goodness we had good coaches to speak up for us. But it's, you you can't treat parasport as an afterthought. And unfortunately, it happens too often. And we are making headway. That's, that's the, programs like this. The intention of programs like this is to make awareness to, um, to parasports and to interview the, the 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 great athletes in different sports and things like that but we also wanted to present situations that maybe listeners don't know and I have one I went to uh two paralympic games the first one was in Beijing and the second one was in uh London in 2012 and we had been preparing for London 2012 for a long time for 4 years as many People do, and I mean, we were we were treated like celebrities. We we were going to the the Paralympic Games. We had earned that, and the most interesting situation happened to us as bocce athletes. We were prepared to go to this event, and everything was set up. and And the one of the people in charge at the games was previously part of our organization, so we felt very comfortable uh, with this. Uh, person and then we found out as we got there that we were going to be put in rooms that were on the second and third floor which would seem fine but the elevator had not been put into the village yet and so here we are as athletes who are bound to wheelchairs having to go upstairs somehow and for those of us that couldn't what they did was they put us in living room areas of um uh, of the dorms and then there was no bathroom attached to the the place where we were we had to walk across the street to go to the bathroom every day and trust me everything else in that situation we were treated like celebrities but in that moment we felt like why are we here because we can't even take care of the necessity things that we need to to properly compete and i want to reiterate 
The only negative thing on that event was due to our living accommodations. Everything else, we were treated properly. But when it starts like that, it's a very unsettling feeling. And to close out the segment, Cameron's going to talk a little bit about swimming as a young athlete. Yeah, way back in the day, I can't even uh, count that far back, but it was back in high school. And I was part of the um, uh, Applewood Heights Secondary School, shout out to them, swim team. And yeah, like my experience for the most part was really good um, because when I started swimming, I wasn't competing against any disabled people whatsoever. Um, and I was swimming uh, about a minute. To, it took me to... Um, to do the swim and my goal was to get it down to 30 seconds and by the very last meet of the very lot like of the at the end of the season uh, I ended up getting that uh, 30 uh, seconds so that was like a really uh, great thing for me because all I wanted to do was to reach a goal and it didn't matter like anyone swimming around me and how much quicker they were because man, they just like absolutely destroyed me um, as far as being quicker than I was, but I had a goal and I stuck to it. And I think that's what Paris sports has taught all of us is just to um, do your personal best. It's all about the PB at the end of the day. And as long as you're bettering yourself, then that's what really matters at the end of the day. So that's my little uh, high school swimming story. Yeah, I think the, uh, the the premise of this segment was that it starts with the people in charge, acknowledging Parasport exists, acknowledging how good these athletes are, acknowledging what they've achieved, et cetera, et cetera. But I just wanted to kind of pull back the curtain and give you a little bit of an inside scoop as to what we've all gone through within Parasports. They have come a long way, but there certainly is room uh, to grow as well, and it's programs like this one that we're on to make para sports become at the forefront and no longer take a back seat. We're going to take a break, and after the break, we're going to be joined by producer of Kelly and Company, Jeff Ryman. He's going to stick around for the second half of the program. First, we're going to start with talking about the trade deadline. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Neutral Zone on AMI Audio. For the neutral zone, call now 1 866 509 4545. And don't forget to give us permission to use your message on the air. Let's get ready to leave a voicemail. Welcome back for the second half of the Neutral Zone. Appreciate you riding alongside with us as we march along here on this Friday. I am your host, Brooke Richardson, joined by Josh Watson and Cam Jenkins. A couple of uh, programming notes if you're looking at sports this weekend. Uh, the Vancouver Canucks 
game for tonight was postponed and it is also postponed for tomorrow and likely in my mind Monday, but we have not got confirmation about Monday's game yet. The Vancouver Canucks have really been in a mess of a situation and that is still going on regarding COVID. Also, the multilingual broadcast that uh, CBC and Sportsnet were planning on uh, putting on on Saturday has also been uh, postponed. So those are your little programming notes if you're planning your weekend. Oh, and I forgot, the Toronto Blue Jays will be playing a back-to-back game on Saturday because of rain in Kansas City. So all that is happening in the next couple of days. What's happening now on our program is... We're going to be joined by uh, the producer over at Kelly and Company, which can be heard uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern. He's also the self-proclaimed sports guy on the network. That's Jeff Ryman. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us for the second half of our program. It's good to be back. How are you doing, guys? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, For anyone that uh, may be listening in the last little while, Jeff used to be our uh, technical producer. Uh, in the summer of last year. And so he got to join us all the time and uh, he's back to uh, spend some time with us now. So what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the uh, trade deadline, which is coming gone. And the first trade that I'd like to put out there is the Taylor Hall going to the Boston Bruins. This is his sixth different, uh, um, sorry, fifth different team in six seasons so this is definitely a big deal taylor hall seemed to want to go to the boston bruins so hopefully he does do well what do you guys make of uh taylor hall moving to boston josh start with you then cam then jeff sure um I think it's a very interesting move. We know that Boston has been banged up recently. They have a number of players on the injured list. I definitely think Taylor Hall can help them. But I'm really curious. I mean, he had a no-trade clause in Buffalo. So obviously this was a destination that he was willing to go to. And if we think back to when he was drafted... It was the Taylor versus Tyler debate uh, being Taylor Hall or Tyler Sagan. Who were you going to choose? Boston chose Sagan at the time and Edmonton, of course, chose Taylor Hall. I wonder if secretly Taylor has always wanted to play in Boston and this was his way of getting there. Cameron? We may not have... Cameron with us. Jeff, what say you yeah, about so, t- Taylor yeah, Hall? This, I mean, I I just want to know Taylor Hall's thought process when he signed willingly in Buffalo in the offseason. I remember just uh, sitting down for dinner when I got a little buzz on my phone and it said that Taylor Hall signed a one-year $8 million contract with the Buffalo Sabres. I was kind of confused then, and I think a lot of people – are still kind of confused now as to why he would sign in a place like Buffalo. That's quite clearly not a playoff contender and they are not even in a rebuild. They haven't even begun a rebuild yet. They're just still trying to chug along and get through the season and then eventually maybe start to, to rebuild. But 
It was pretty evident that Taylor Hall wanted out of Buffalo. I believe at one of the uh, post-media or post-game scrums, uh, somebody asked him, you know, would you welcome a trade basically out of Buffalo? And he said, yeah, for sure. (laughs) So really not holding anything back. Um, As, you know, Boston picked him up, I thought that is a really solid deal. I mean, it's not like they they paid an arm and a leg uh, to get a player like Taylor Hall. I'm higher on Hall than most people. You can't forget he's just a couple years removed from being the MVP of the NHL. I know he's had an up and down season. Well, down season, I'd say more so than anything up and down last couple of years. But I feel like the potential there. And the the amount of uh, well the draft pick and a player that they that Boston gave up I think that'll um, you know very good bargain for, from Boston's ends and he scored his first goal yesterday and uh, you know I, I don't know how well he'll actually perform throughout the rest of the season but I think the the potential is very intriguing for Boston and. It's it, it was quite evident that, you know, there was no holding back. I mean, I think you pull that trigger each and every time. Now, I will say, you know, some people wanted Taylor Hall to go to maybe a Canadian team, Montreal or Toronto, somebody that could, you know, use him to make a deep playoff run. But it also sounded like Taylor Hall, who had a no movement clause, uh, basically wanted to go to Boston and wants to sign a long term deal there. Um, so that's another factor on top of this. But I think overall, really solid haul for the Boston Bruins. As for the Buffalo Sabres, I guess they kind of got what, uh, you know, all that they could get. And that's a second round pick and uh, a, a younger NHL player. So uh, good for the Boston Bruins. I'd much rather uh, Nick Foligno over Taylor Hall. I'm just putting that out there. Um, Cameron. At what point do we put Taylor Hall on the spot of like, okay, dude, this is your fifth team in six seasons. Is it Taylor Hall or is it um, that he just hasn't found the right fit yet? Uh, I personally think it's that he just hasn't found the right fit because uh, Buffalo, uh, talk about a, a dumpster fire. That's what Buffalo's been for the past few years now. And New Jersey, yeah, he had an MVP uh, season, but at the end of the day, uh, that wasn't a very good team either. So I think you need to be on a um, a good team. And Taylor Hall, he can't be the main person. He needs to be the second or third option, kind of like Phil Kessel was, I think, at the end of the day. So I think that's... You know, Taylor Hall, I think he's going to do really well with the Bruins. And because um, Taylor Hall had a no movement clause, no trade clause, um, you know, he was only going to Boston at the end of the day and Buffalo couldn't do anything about it. So they tried to get as much uh, as as they could. But why would you give a person an eight million dollar salary plus no trade clause to be with Buffalo when you probably knew you were going to be trading him at the deadline anyway to try to reap some reward for that. So I just don't know what's going on with uh, Buffalo's, uh, you know, executive team. I also read Uh, that Buffalo retained part of his salary as well. So, I mean, like Jeff said, score for Boston. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. It's it's huge for Boston. And, you know, I was just so speechless before, uh, Jeff, and that's why, you know, uh, I wasn't able to say anything before because it's just I'm so happy to have you back on the show again, Jeffy. 
<laughs> oh, I appreciate it, Cam. Missed you guys. Uh, uh, yes, for <laughs> sure. Um, I, I just I want to make mention of the uh, Canadian teams. Do, do you guys think that Winnipeg did enough to be that team that might contend with one? I don't know, Toronto Maple Leaf squad, Josh. I think they'll give Toronto a run for their money, but I think ultimately with the moves Toronto has made, they're a better team. I just, I think Jordy Ben is a great defenseman, but he's also getting long in the, uh, long in the tooth. So you've really got a question. Was that the best person that they could bring into that team? Cause they are a solid team. I just, I don't think they've done enough to, to get past it. You can only ride Hellebuck for so long. We're going to pick up the uh, trade deadline uh, discussion after this break. Plus, we're going to tell you a little bit about something weird that took place in Tampa Bay at their first home (laughs) game. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Neutral Zone right here on AMI. Welcome back to the Neutral Zone right here on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Brock Richardson, joined by Cam Jenkins, Josh Watson, and producer of Kelly and Company, Jeff Ryman. Jeff, I'm going to start with you here because you and I had some offline uh, conversation that you mentioned that the uh, general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, Jim Benning, needs to be fired. Can you express why? I mean, I'm not calling for the guy's job. I, I don't know if I'd go as far as that he needs to be fired, but I think, you know, everything that he's done has been extremely, extremely questionable, uh, especially as of late. Um, and, and, you know, this is nothing in one particular signing, um, but you just look at some of the, the cap construction with the, with, with the, Vancouver Canucks and I, I know they just signed Tanner Pearson uh, to uh, a couple year deal worth a couple million dollars but if you look at in terms of cap right now the Vancouver Canucks believe it or not are actually fifth in the entire NHL uh, with an 85.8 million dollar cap hit and that's not going to get a whole lot better over the next couple of seasons. Yes, you have Brock Besser signed for this year and next, but then after that, he's an RFA, which is going to be probably um, a, a pretty intense go uh, in terms of, of contract talks. It, it, not to mention, you have other guys who have expiring contracts. Um, Quinn Hughes, another one of those guys who's uh, an RFA at the end of this year. He's probably going to demand a pretty penny. Um, And you just look at everything that's really gone on over the last couple of years between the Tyler Myers signing where he's making $6 million over the next four seasons, Nate Schmidt, who's making $6 million over the next five seasons, uh, who really hasn't fit overly well in that defense core for the Vancouver Canucks, it just looks like they're doing 
that that classic um uh, tape job where they're starting to put tape over and, and try to cover up uh, as much mistake as possible and to keep their roster afloat. Meanwhile, trying to keep their younger uh, core engaged here. So I'm not exactly sure which direction Jim Benning and the Vancouver Canucks are going. Thank goodness they still have um, their their draft picks. They still have their first, second, and third round picks in this upcoming draft. They picked up a couple of picks as well. Um, but in terms of the direction, I think it's not very clear. They're going out and signing veterans who are over the age of 30, but they've also got huge holes uh, in terms of contracts and some major contracts expiring uh, that will definitely uh, have to be signed over the next couple of seasons. They've also got Holtby and Demko tied up for how much? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of uh, their issue there as well. I I think for me, I, I think Vancouver has just been that team that's just kind of over there and and you know they're 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 kind of patching it together as jeff points out but i want to ask uh cam and josh to start do you think the gm even though he made that eric Stahl deal that's on the hot seat is mark bergerman i mean i was shocked that he has been here for nine seasons and i have to say that if they don't get out of the first round to me i think he's the guy on the real real hot seat uh, Cameron, start with you and then Josh. Yeah, you know what? Like getting Eric Stahl, you can't really blame him for that because, you know, put him on a third or fourth line, and I think he'd do very well um, winning face-offs and, you know, doing all the right things that a third and fourth line player should. Um, saying that, he spent a lot of money this past uh, offseason in order to be able to get players and thought that the team would be better than it is. And when you have your uh, backup goalie making $4.5 million and he's not winning games for you like he should be, then that's a huge problem. And I really think that they need to take a hard look at what they have. And, you know, I think they're going to have to make some trades in the offseason uh, for different kinds of players because it's not working. And that contract for Carey Price is looking like an albatross that is 10.5 million per season 100 percent yeah it's it's an interesting dynamic there in Montreal I think the thing we have to always look at is their penchant for signing French-speaking GMs French-speaking coaches and French-speaking players when that is one of your criteria, I think that does cause you some problems. But I definitely agree. Some of the moves have definitely been suspect at best. I just, I'm not sure who you replace him with, to be honest. But I think you do have to make a change. After the trade deadline, where would you rank uh, the, the teams at one through four if at all different than what we are seeing now and who gets out of the North division ultimately start with you, Cam, then Jeff, then Josh. Yeah, I think um, the Toronto Maple Leafs, they are the, um, you know, cream of the crop when it comes to the North division. I think right behind them are equal to you have Winnipeg jets as well. Um, then after that, you know, you're looking at Montreal and oof, 
Like after that, I don't know. Calgary, maybe, or am I missing another team? Like definitely not Ottawa, definitely not Vancouver. Uh, Edmonton's in there as well. Oh, Edmonton, thank you. Yeah, no, Edmonton's up there too. I'd probably put them number three for Edmonton, to be quite honest with you. But Toronto, Winnipeg, I think they're right at the top. I think it's probably closer than people think at the top. I think Toronto is the best team, number one. I would put Winnipeg, number two. Um, Again, uh, going back to the last segment, you guys sort of mentioned the, the trades that Winnipeg made. Um, I, I still think they're missing another defenseman or two, but they definitely have the upper hand in the goaltending category. Um, I think the Montreal Canadiens are the third team to look out for in that North division. Uh, I just think they're a little bit more of a well-rounded team. I don't know if I would necessarily say uh, they're a legit playoff contending team. They're going to make the playoffs, but I'm just not sure uh, how far they'll be able to make it. The Edmonton Oilers, of course, they've just kind of stayed put at, at the deadline, and they didn't really address much at all. I mean, they're still relying very heavily on their top two players in Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. I think that's kind of a scary thing to do when you're heading into the playoffs. So um, I'd say Toronto, then Winnipeg, Montreal, and then Edmonton. Can I just say, and and I want to move on to another topic before we get out of here, but can I just say that if Toronto doesn't get out of the first round, uh, something needs to change in, in the core, and I'm looking right at William Nylander. Like, Honestly, we can all look at with the with the addition of Nick Foligno and say, okay, this team's better, you know, uh, right away. But if this team gets caught by Montreal, and let me be fair, Montreal can do it. Carey Price can steal you a series. Ask Pittsburgh about that. We just saw this happen. So do not sleep on the Montreal Canadiens, but something needs to change in the core if, God forbid, the Toronto Maple Leafs do not get out of the first round, and Montreal happens to overtake them. Anyone have any thoughts before we move on quickly to our last topic? Yeah, just Do you a quick want me thing to give my picks. Watch? Oh yes, have you? Yes, go ahead. Sorry, Josh, I I forgot. Go ahead, quick. You're walking all over me again. Um, for me, I do agree that Toronto has got to be in top spot. Uh, for me, it's close between Edmonton. Uh, sorry, between Winnipeg and Montreal. I think Winnipeg goes in second. I just, I think Winnipeg, uh, sorry, I think Montreal will possibly scare some people if they get it together, but I put them at number three. And Edmonton, as long as they rely on Drysaddle and McDavid as their only method of scoring, with Nurse being number three, I think they're in fourth place. There you go. My apologies. My apologies on that. Cameron, you wanted to make a quick comment on the Maple Leafs Montreal Canadiens which I spewed out about yeah I just uh will have none of your negative uh influence towards the Toronto Maple Leafs Brock and I don't want to hear any talk whatsoever of them not going out of the first round because they will get out of the first round this year so no more negative talk Brock fair enough fair enough I've just had too much, seen too much happen to this team that I get very scared of one Montreal Canadiens squad. I want to touch on this topic, which is very odd, 
But uh, the Tampa Bay Rays got an American League a pennant because they made it to the World Series. And on their first game at home of the year, they received rings. Has any of you seen anything like this? Is it weird? Josh, start with you. Jeff, then Cam. This is absolutely ridiculous. It's it's like saying, congratulations, you've made it as far as you're ever going to go. Like, why would you put that on a team? It's fine. Celebrate the fact that you made the World Series. That's great. But to to give World Series-style rings for winning an American League championship, like, it's... It, it, it's mind-boggling. I just, I don't understand it. I have never seen it before. It makes no sense. Mind you, not a lot of things with Tampa Bay do make sense to me. So, yeah. I think the the word that you're looking for is cringeworthy because that's the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, I also thought it was a joke when I saw the Tampa Bay Rays post that. I've never seen a team do that, I guess, cool like congratulations to them for winning the al east and congratulations for losing in the world series um (laughs) it kind of rubs you the wrong way and just looking at the fan base how they reacted on twitter you know most fans of the tampa bay rays were like why why would you do this is kind of embarrassing on on the on the team's behalf so uh very cringeworthy i think uh coming from the tampa bay rays earlier this week my thoughts is that what's going to happen, all the teams in Major League Baseball for completing a 162-game season is now going to get a participation medal or participation ribbon. <laughs> um, the other thing is is that with Tampa Bay, um, they're always crying that they don't have a lot of money and not putting it towards payroll. How about instead of giving rings out to everybody for winning the American League East, put that money back into the development so you can like have a bigger payroll and uh, a better team? Those are my thoughts. Very, very well said. For me, I look at it and I think the celebration alone, you look at it and that team or organization, as it were, is admitting that that's as far as we're going to go. That's why you saw on Twitter, what is this nonsense? It is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. It looked ridiculous. I don't mind if they give it out. But knock off the celebration, please. So those are my my thoughts. And uh, that reaches the end of our program. I'd like to thank Jeff Ryman, who's producer over there at Kelly and Company. Cam Jenkins, Josh Watson. Our technical producer is Matt Agnew. Our technical supervisor is Paula Deneen. And our manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. Tune in next week because you never know what happens when you enter the neutral zone. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.